Everything you know about health is about to change. Welcome to Straight Talk on Health with Dr. Vincent Medici. Sometimes people suffer, not from lack of faith, but from lack of knowledge. This is the show that changes that. If you are tired of being sick, tired of not getting answers, tired of spinning in circles, for healing is not a mystery. It is a miracle that you were designed to experience. It takes hard work and real knowledge. It takes patience and time. It takes the education this show can provide. So get it straight today. Here's Dr. Medici. Good morning and happy Labor Day weekend to you. That last part of the summer, we get those heat waves. We've got it this weekend. That's fantastic, right? You like to sweat. Yes, you do. Because you listen to the show and you know if you sweat, you get rid of the junk that you otherwise might keep trapped in your cells. That aside, Labor Day weekend, that's traditionally, and I use that word, you know, with all the nuances of it, traditionally, Americans celebrated the fruits and craftsmanship behind their labor. That was the tradition. It's as if everybody was a craftsman. Back in the day, before corporations ruled the world, each person put their shingle out and said, this is what I do, and I do it better than anybody, or at least in the ideal of it. And if you're a craftsman, well, it's something to celebrate. Now, that's been competed for by mass production, by the factory system, we don't have artisans anymore. So you go to the donut shop and it's not the old German or French baker. You go buy bread and it's not the artisan that makes bread. But we still have the holiday and we still celebrate it. What exactly we're celebrating? Well, please let me know other than a day's relief from the, from the grind. The grind of labor. Now, wait a second. How can we be celebrating labor when really the value is to get away from it? Because that's basically what's being done this weekend. Just something to think about. The loss of the artisan. Since COVID, we've collapsed thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, certainly tens of thousands of private entrepreneurialships. And this trend seems to be moving in the same direction. In fact, it has been moving in this direction for the last hundred years in America. So happy Labor Day to you, and let's celebrate the fruits of true labor, entrepreneurialism, and craftsmanship, the artisan, the artisan's guild. Something you put your name on, and if somebody doesn't like it, they can knock on your door and have an argument with you about it. So happy Labor Day to us all. That aside, today's show is about strokes. Lots of people get strokes. I've seen some tragedies in the last year. A stroke. Third leading cause of death. Cancer, heart disease, stroke. Obviously, blood thinners aren't doing such a great job. Just like, obviously, statin drugs aren't doing such a great job. If they were doing such a great job, why would we still have so many strokes? Furthermore, 
most of the strokes, the vast majority of strokes that cause death, are the second and third strokes. Well, after the first stroke, anyone that's been through it, or has known anyone, perhaps you've had a loved one that's been through it, you're medicated to the hilt on various types of blood thinners. Plavix, Eliquis, the list is endless. Well, now let's think about that. If stroke is the third leading cause of death, and if the vast majority of deaths are the second or third stroke, and since the standard remedy for the first stroke is the blood thinner, uh, don't you think something's not working out too well? Just do the math. You see, if you stroke, and there's two kinds of strokes. One is called an embolic stroke. That means your body made a blood clot somewhere. It could be in the calf. That's a deep venous thrombosis, a calf muscle, not a muscle, but the vein in the deep calf clots up. So a good reason for that as one of the primary sources of what becomes the embolic stroke to the lung, in which case we call it a pulmonary embolism, or in fact the embolic stroke to the brain, but it's from way down in your calf muscle. There's a good reason it comes from the calf. And the reason is that thick, fat calf muscle pulled tight, pulled dense and tight around the tibia because your Achilles tendon is so tight. You ever stretch your Achilles? You know what I mean. It's the biggest tendon in the body. It's like a rock. And when it pulls tight, which it will, and why will it? Because lots of people shift posturally from the heel to the forefoot and live that way, otherwise known as an incompetent psoas muscle, lack of flexibility. The net effect of a shortened Achilles tendon pulls the fascial sheath around the veins of the deep calf into a knot, thus the reason we're always wondering and hoping we don't ever get the deep vein thrombosis deep under the soleus muscle of the calf. Then there's just the plain, plain old brain clot. In other words, there's an embolus up in the brain, meaning a blood clot that travels from the heart or the calf to the brain. Or it starts in the brain and that's where it harms you. Well, if this is the case... We have to consider sources. Why do people get clots, which become the embolic stroke? Now, a stroke, meaning that which causes, is caused by a clot, it's not just really a clump of blood. It's a lot of things on top of a clump of blood. And I have to get into that if possible. But what causes the clot, wherever it is? Well, one thing is the blood's too thick. In Chinese medicine, thickness of blood or blood viscosity is of massive significance and it underlies it. It is one of the foundational perspectives or perceptions as to how all disease develops. Cancers in Chinese medicine are called cold blood stasis tumors. 
But that same blood stasis, meaning altered blood viscosity, meaning your blood's just too thick, thus the tendency to clot. If that so happens to create an episode up in the brain, well, there's your embolic stroke. Well, why is the blood too thin? There's about 600 shows up. Many of those shows talk about blood stasis, blood viscosity, what to do about it. So just understand in the overview of it, blood viscosity drives a stroke. That blood viscosity has lots of reasons. I'm going to get into a few and then we're going to move. You can hear this show again and again and again and you can link it up to other shows. In fact, today I'm going to do a one-hour show, meaning I'm going to add to this 30-hour radio broadcast and attach it as part two to this show. So if you can get to the website, straighttalk.cc, two Ts.cc, you can hear the other half an hour. I'm going to go back to that format. I did that for a few years. Then academics denied me the time, and now we're back in the flow that way. So blood clots to the brain, embolisms it's called, one form of stroke. The other one is hemorrhagic. We'll get to that in a minute. But blood clots to the brain driven by blood viscosity. The blood gets too thick. One reason you're running your blood sugar too high. Now, notice I didn't say one reason you're a diabetic. I didn't say that. See, the scam is to tell you you're okay with your glycated hemoglobin at 5.6, 5.7. There's so much of it, and they've monetized it so well that now you'll be told if your glycated hemoglobin is up at 5.6, 5.7, 5.8, that you're pre-diabetic, in which case you go home and do absolutely nothing. And everybody knows that. You're just being warmed up for the big day when that glycated hemoglobin pops over six and then you're told to do the drugs. All of this is, of course, is monetization nonsense. And the truth is, once that glycated hemoglobin is above five, 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 six, now you're getting into blood sugar dysregulation. What does that mean? It means you're postprandial. Your blood sugar one hour after you eat is jacked up well over 100. It means too many hours of the day you're living with your sugar high well over 100, 120, 130. You're not going to catch this in the fasting morning blood glucose. That's another scam. No one even does the glycated hemoglobin. Kaiser certainly doesn't unless you make them, and even then they'll tell you no. And just because your fasting blood glucose is normal, that's idiocy to think that your glycated hemoglobin won't be high. I can't get into it now. We don't have enough time. But just understand that in terms of what drives a clot, the blood's got to get too thick. Why does the blood get thick? The blood sugar's too high. Why does the blood get thick? The insulin that goes with high blood sugar is too high. Insulin is pro-clot. It's pro-coagulation. It's pro-blood stasis. Along with pro-blood stasis, pro-coagulation, high insulin, high blood sugar are pro-inflammatory. That means the chemical manifestations or the chemical derivatives of 
insulin and blood sugar too high means your little immune system cells like the macrophages run around and when they see all the derivatives all the cell damage that comes with high blood sugar and high insulin well those macrophages start to signal the production of something called a cytokine a cytokine begins a cascade that causes the deposition of a lot of fibrin fibrin you see we shouldn't be talking about strokes we shouldn't be assaying we ought to be looking at the fibrin levels in the blood and of course we say we do we measure that as fibrinogen in our attempts to do so are myopic and asinine there was a guy by the name of Enderlin Gunther Enderlin out of Germany back in the day when real medicine existed and he was preceded by Beauchamp out of France, who was a competitor to Pasteur, who was bought by the Rockefellers. And Beauchamp, who had done and saved many, many industries and was reputed as well, if not better, than Pasteur, understood the consequence of running a pro-inflammatory body in which the fibrin levels were too high, none of which your doctor at Kaiser is ever going to catch. No, fibrinogen levels don't measure this. If you run a pro-inflammatory body, you don't sleep, you have stress, you eat too much sugar, it's in your genetics, whatever it is. If you do that, you're going to have a lot of fibrin. On top of the fact that you'll have blood stasis. If you combine that fibrin with blood stasis, the fibrin nets, it puts a net around the blood because it sees the blood itself as the enemy. Now you're starting to set yourself up for a blood clot. Now let's go up to the brain and understand something about the brain. The brain is a pump. The bones of the cranium are pumps and they pump both cerebrospinal fluid and also blood. But that doesn't happen if the cranial rhythms are depressed. It is with great sadness that I tell you that your average person and all your medical doctors, with rare exception, have no concept of what I'm talking about right now. They don't know what a cranial rhythm means. They don't respect it. They wouldn't know how to measure the wide diversity in its function. And they don't know what it does and why you need to have the brain in collusion with the sutures of the cranium allowing the brain to pump because as the brain pumps the blood vessels move their blood both arterial and more importantly the venous blood drains with the right frequencies in other words you pump the brain and the blood doesn't have enough time to clot because it's swished away you see it's like when it rains, like probably this winter we're going to have massive rains and 98% of that water is going to go into the sewer system and into the ocean so we can have another drought next year. But don't tell the California political system we ought to be building reservoirs, you see, instead of being ridiculously generous to social service. Let's just suffer like idiots. But that aside, it's like the rains in the winter. And you watch that water shoot down a street. What clot could form? What 
compost of mud could form when that rain is gushing. But if you go to a pool, a swamp, a place where the water is still, you know how you can clump things up. That's just common sense. You don't have to be too smart to figure that one out. Well, that's the point then. The point is, is that if the cranial rhythms work right, if the sutures of the brain are flexing, if the arterial and venous system, especially venous, are getting their pump, clots don't have time to form. But you see, that's not what happens. People clench their teeth. They clench their teeth. That kills the cranial rhythm. They have head trauma. It kills the cranial rhythm. They lose teeth. It kills the cranial rhythm. Their balance, their bites are imbalanced. That kills the cranial rhythm. They can't get air through their nose. They needed to see an ENT. That needs the cranial rhythm. And I'll give you the topper. You want to know the topper? Well, so many of these yo-yos are looking for, why did he have a stroke? I don't understand. It's called sleep apnea, which tons of people live with. Now, when you listen to this show again, if you just profile out your average person, you can see why strokes are the third leading cause of death. And so what do we throw at it? Blood thinners. Blood thinners. We love you, so we're going to give you a little eloquence just to make sure. You see? This is the sucker punch. And by the way, good luck with those vaccines. Real good. They had to pull the Johnson vaccine for a while because they knew it would create blood clots. I guess it's back. I don't even know. I don't even care. But let me tell you something. Clots and blood stasis are in collusion with pro-inflammatory, out-of-control immune systems, which is exactly what vaccines will stimulate. You get a hyperimmunity response to the vaccine, to good Moderna's, Two good Pfizer's, a good Johnson that they pulled and then put back on, the AstraZeneca and everything else down the line. Keep in mind, if you're prone to clots, vaccines are a wonderful way. I know, I know. Can't get on that subject. But just think your average young person by the time they're 20, 20, 30 vaccines, and then after 60, you got to get the vaccines for everything. Vaccines for the flu, vaccines for COVID, vaccines for shingles, vaccines for just about anything. And then you got to get your vaccines renewed and then you got to get your boosters. Boy, oh boy. Unbelievable when I think about it. So here's the point. There's lots of reasons that clots form. And then once they form and you get a hint, transient ischemic attack, a TIA, or you go all the way to the big one then they monitor you very closely and they love you so they make sure they check on you to make sure you're taking your drugs now hemorrhagic strokes if you internalize your emotions be careful if you internalize your emotions and you clench which lots of internalizers do be careful because if you internalize your emotions and you clench, you will get high blood pressure. And if you don't, I don't have high blood pressure. I clench, and I'm a bit internalized, but I don't get high blood pressure. I took my blood pressure this morning. 
It was 120 over 80. My doctor patted me on the head. Well, here's the thing, what Doc forgot. That's not the threat. The threat is in an intermittent spike. A lot of people, when they get up in the morning or during the day or if they sit down and relax, can succeed at dropping their blood pressure. But when it spikes, like you get annoyed on the freeway, like you get annoyed with your boss, like you get annoyed with your significant other, but you eat it, you internalize it, your blood pressure can go up to 300. You can pop a cork in the top of your head so fast you can't believe it. We don't even understand blood pressure correctly. Intermittent spikes of blood pressure are not detected by I went to the doctor and he took my blood pressure. This is known. This is in the literature. This is respected by the scientists, none of which ever talk to your medical doctors. Your medical doctors are too busy basically just adding up numbers and just making sure they're good doctors and they deploy the standard of care. The standard of care is not for doctors to think. Any good doctor will tell you that today. This is why Dr. Oz has said the medical system in America is broken. To get a doctor to think creatively and outside the box to appreciate the finer dynamics and nuances of science is becoming exceedingly rare. But so is anybody who knows how to do good carpentry or make a great car. And what it really reflects is the corporation. The corporation in collusion with the government. And what do you call that? Socialism or communism? Where is America? Where are the innovators? They're not in education. They're not in journalism. They're not in the press. They're certainly not in my forte, that being science and, and, and medicine. Happy Labor Day weekend to you. We're celebrating American entrepreneurship. So, the vessel that bursts, thus the hemorrhagic stroke, you'll bleed into the brain. And then that poses big issues because once you bleed into the brain, meaning the blood vessel bleeds into the cerebral spinal fluid, now all Dickens can break out. Now the intracranial pressures go up and then you got to do a craniotomy. That means we drill a hole into your skull. That's a lot of fun. That doesn't have ramifications, but that may be the only life saving procedure to do at that time. That's a judgment call, which is usually made by an ER doc. How many ER docs do you really think know how to do craniotomies? It's not like you call your neurosurgeon, he gets up out of bed at 4 a.m., runs over in his undies, and performs the surgery because he loves you. No, you're in a managed care system, and some guy at night is sitting there that gets called in that doesn't have the skill when the most important decisions are there to be made. Good luck with your health care. Little hint, all you people in these stupid managed care systems where you can't even choose your own physicians, what is wrong? Medicare Supplemental will allow you. Find the money and do Medicare Supplemental. And if you want a doctor tomorrow at Harvard... That's 72 years old. It's been doing innovative surgeries for 30 years, and you need them, and you live in Pasadena, you can pick that doctor. Find a health broker and start looking into Medicare supplemental plans. I know lots of people that have them, 
and they don't cost that much money. You just have to maybe cut out that one restaurant meal a week. So keep that in mind. Now, the flexibility within that artery, as your blood pressure is intermittently spiking, yes, the flexibility of that artery becomes ever more important. You want a young, flexible artery because those blood pressure spikes don't want to tear, aneurysm the artery. So what's flexibility in the artery? Well, you see, this is a thing now. If you've got lots of calcific deposits, meaning arteriosclerosis, you may tear that artery more easily. Then, of course, there's the essential fatty acid that has to be the constituent. You want good fat, healthy fat, to make the cell membranes of the epithelial cells and other cells in the arterial beds or even the capillary beds, the fatty part of the cell membranes of not just the endothelial layer, but the mesothelial layers of the larger arteries. Collectively, you've got to have the great fat, not the garbage fat. If your omega-3s are real low, do you think the body, what do you think the body's going to do? It's going to use garbage fat. It's going to use other essential fatty acids. Uh, it's going to use other fatty acids. The body knows how to compensate. If it doesn't have top shelf, but it needs top shelf, it'll use rack. It's like a party. You want top shelf. You want your Covasier XO and your Remy XO, and they just have the regular one. It's like you want Bombay, and they just have Gordon's. It's like you want Johnny Walker Red or Blue, and they just have basic Doors, basic Scotch. The body's creative. It'll use rack. So if your nutrition to that artery, especially essential fatty acids, isn't wonderful, you're going to get a weaker artery. Now I'm going to make a brave attempt to do another half an hour on the stroke thing, and we can start to maybe deal with therapies, creative therapies. In the meantime... Listen to it on Monday or Tuesday after the holiday. I hope you have a great holiday. Take it at its best. God bless you, and I'll see you next week. Okay, that's a wrap. Don't forget to get to Dr. Medici's website at drmedici.com to look at the pictures and review the show as often as you wish. See you next week. All right, welcome to part two. All right, so part one is what you do to prevent. Part two is what you do outside the box after you've had the stroke. Now, you see, what the first, the first fallacy, and it's understandable, but the first fallacy is that it's all about the stroke, meaning it's what am I going to do about my stroke? And this is a, this is a trap. Because there's fundamental laws here that apply to every healing that have to apply more than ever when you have a stroke. And that is not what do I do about the stroke to regain function, but what do I do about my health so my body creates an environment that allows me to regain function. When you talk about plasticity of the brain, meaning the other parts of the brain, other cells that are going to take over the function 
where cells have been lost, perhaps not to be regrown. Generally, that's not the case. The brain, unlike the liver, unlike the skin, unlike the inner lining of the lungs, the, uh, the bronchi or the epithelial tissues of the intestines, neurons generally don't regenerate under normal physiological laws. And I say under normal physiological laws. See, that's always the point. But if you're John Q. Public, let's start with normal physiological law, which means whether you've got the hemorrhage or the clot, cells to the brain die. When they die, you don't work as well. Plasticity means can other parts of the brain, unknown to you, be tempered, be conditioned, be persuaded, be coerced, be trained, be trained through militant discipline to take over the function of the other neurons. And, of course, this is where the great frontier is because we really don't know what those limitations are. I'll tell you the first mistake when you have a stroke. The first mistake is you take advice from the people that are supposed to know what your limitations are. And of course, those people are your neurologists, your neurosurgeons, your physical therapists, etc. And of course, who are they and what are they depending on in their data bank? The people that they've told you're going to be that way forever or do the best you can or don't plan on changing that much or this is tragic and you're going to have to live with it. Even if you don't get that, you catch on pretty quickly that after you've had a stroke and lost function, something very large is looming in terms of your future, meaning you're just not going to like do a couple of cleanses, learn some groovy exercises from your physical therapist, and see gain of function. It's not likely. So once you sense that, and once your therapists, physical therapists, neurologists, etc., three months, six months, nine months down the line, once they feel pretty comfortable that you've kind of bottomed out on your approach, then all of a sudden they get a little bit more upfront about stating the limitations. And all this comes down to is after a year or so after people have strokes, they've basically given up. And that's unfortunate. And the reason it's unfortunate is the data bank is only based on people who gave up. Another way to look at that is if you've had a stroke, there's a brave new frontier ahead of you and there's no telling what you can do. Now, if you pan the literature, there are, of course, the great book, My Stroke of Insight. And there's others that refer to these amazing rehabs that people had and have and will continue to have that everybody said they couldn't have. And, of course, this is deemed a miracle. I, You know, I got to tell you, I can't stand that kind of stuff. Because it's not a miracle in the sense of you didn't work your rear end off for it. You work like a crazy animal and God provides. Now that's the miracle I'd go for. But you see, the way this hits the press, because it's atypical, is, is that a miracle occurred. Not so much because somebody helped shape their destiny, but because God was just kind to that individual. 
And this is a terrible thing because not everybody expects to have a miracle from God. The attitude ought to be way more deterministic. So you face that, number one. Now that aside, you have to understand you're not going to get the plasticity you want with stroke-specific remedies. There's no such thing as that. It's more like the radical things you have to do to build your health and then add stroke-specific remedies to that. Give you an example, stem cells. If you've had a stroke, you want to call Neil Reardon down there in Panama, go there, spend the money if you have it. If you don't have the money, get it. And get yourself twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of stem cell therapy. That's right. And I don't think Neil Reardon or anyone like that's going to tell you you're going to have a positive outcome. Definitely. That's not going to be what they tell you. And one of the reasons for this is that the people that go down to get rehabbed have had the stroke, have sulked, have tried a couple of therapies, are just trying to come to terms with the tragedy that's occurred. And then in more or less a last-ditch effort, they go down to Panama and do stem cell therapies. It doesn't work that way. Those therapies are not going to show you a high rate of return. Should you do them? Yes. Are they critical to do? Yes. But not if you disrespect rule one, which is get yourself radically healthy in a way that's specific to you, whatever that might be. You were overweight. You were under-exercised. You were under enormous stress. You did enough wrong. You clenched. All the things I talked about in part one, you've had the stroke. You have to fix those things. Now, let me linchpin this into what's poignantly relevant. You have to clean the intercellular space in every way before you get stem cells. You want return on stem cells, you have to get healthy specific to you. The poignant angle is you have to take the intercellular space, the space between the neurons, and of course, what is that space between the neurons? That's the cerebrospinal fluid. You have to temper that fluid. And yes, that fluid is infectiously sterile, but that doesn't mean that fluid is not filled with crap. So this is the thing about the medicine that gets to the public that's disgusting. You can't talk about cleaning the intercellular space between the neurons and the cerebral spinal fluid to a neurologist because that neurologist has been told from day one that the body takes care of that. And that, of course, is a load of crap. Don't tell that to your average mundane neurologist. Yes, neurologist, that space is non-infectious. I mean, usually, if that's not the case, you have a huge issue, but... Generally, that's not where you're going to find the issue. The issue is that the cranial rhythms don't pump the cerebral spinal fluid and you get a higher concentration of all the exudate from the neurons, including all the fibrinous dead material, and that just sits there. You can't get stem cells there even if you could get stem cells there. 
you can't induce plasticity, meaning you can't put on other cells the burden of taking over the place of cells that were once there if the terrain will not ask for it. It's going to take currency. It's going to take cellular upgrades, meaning whatever the cell has to do to accommodate moving an arm when an arm doesn't want to move is going to demand that a cell remodels itself in some way, shape, or form. That is, minimally speaking, reasonable. And if you don't get that environment change, then you're not going to get those benefits. And stem cells certainly aren't going to work. And then you've got to add to that another point. Stressing the cells. This is the thing about damaged tissue people don't understand. Take lung tissue. I'll give you an example, this, this recent lie about COVID syndrome. It's kind of dying out now because COVID's dying out. We're not going to listen to this crock too much anymore until they come up with another one, which they will. But as far as COVID's concerned, this post-COVID syndrome, like where you can't breathe, you still have COVID-like symptoms and the whole thing, the way you get rid of that is to stress your lungs. If you can't breathe post-COVID, you have to stress your lungs. That means get your rear end up the hill. Walk slowly, walk moderately slow, walk fast, then begin to jog. Push it to the limit of common sense. And your body will go into a cascade of known equations and unknown equations. And it'll deliver you, it will deliver you healthy, Remodel lung tissue. That's what the human body does, but you have to stress it. Now, what does that mean in the context of a guy that was walking and he's no longer walking, or he's a hemiplegic, he's got only half his body working? I'll tell you what it means. Number one, if you can and you must, and that's the thing. You say, if you can, and we understand if you can't, that's a dangerous thing to say. So let me say it this way. Second mortgage your house to go get a pool. Yeah, I know that's crazy. And I know you're not going to do it. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Get that backyard of yours. And if you don't have one, get one. Go somewhere where you can have a little bit of property. Half an acre, a quarter acre. Get yourself a pool. It can be an above-ground pool. It only costs you five grand, $6,000. And set it up so that some machine can take you to the top with a float and dump yourself in the water. That's right. That is exactly right. Throw yourself in your water and make yourself swim. Don't stand there at the edge and hold yourself with the hand you can hold yourself and move the leg you can move and forget about the other one. Put yourself in a position where you're compelled to move your entire body. And when you can't, you will. How do you learn to swim? Throw yourself in the water. How do you learn to fight? Walk into the middle of one. How do you learn to hunt? Like the ancient Spartans taught hunting. They took their 12-year-olds, gave them a spear after a little bit of training, and said, come back alive. Now, I'm not that crazy, so I wouldn't advise you 
to be ridiculous and hurt yourself. But if as soon as you can, you were over your head in water, you were in seven feet of water after you had a stroke where you lost an arm and were in a float and had people watching and therefore were in a position where you're relatively safe, as I said, we're not suggesting craziness. But what it would do is compel you. It would force you to move your entire body. That's not a little thing. That's a big thing. Now, the equipment necessary is not what you're going to find at LA Fitness. The equipment necessary is not what your physical therapist is going to give you with a bunch of stupid bands. They have machines. They're pricey. And a lot of people that get strokes are kind of, they're already feeble. For you to move to induce the neurological cascades, the hormonal cascades to create the plasticity or to build better yet new neurons or to better yet take full advantage of, in, of stem cell therapies, for you to do that, you've got to have enough muscle to move your body to burden it, to stress the body. You've got to have the muscle to stress it. So you have to be situated then in just the plain old environments that build muscle. The muscle atrophy after a stroke is massive. And lots of people go into the stroke with considerable muscle atrophy. That doesn't work if you expect to stress your body to the point where the brain will deliver the solution. The brain will get the impetus, the impulse from the environment you put it in and then send out messages that in reciprocity with the muscle and the brain itself will begin to remodel the brain to deliver. That's what works. And there are people that do this. And if you've had a stroke, read. My stroke of insight is one. But there's lots of other people who have refused to sit down to strokes. And they end up putting money into rather, well, what's the word for it? Sophisticated types of equipment that challenges dexterity, that challenges the body to move, that builds muscle mass. And I'm telling you, on top of that, master your experience in water. Open up all your connections to the telluric currents. If you look at the show, show 589, rehabbing a place like that of Big Sur, rehabbing the Greek Isle, rehab where it's clean, sleep in the telluric currents, sleep in the teepees, sleep in the yurts. You can put a yurt in for $10,000. You got even a half an acre. For ten grand, you can bring one in from Mongolia, put it in your yard, and start sleeping on the earth. There's no end to what you can do. And within a year or two, you'll get your returns. So the takeaways. One, you've got to get healthy to allow the terrain to remodel. Two, you've got to 
stress the body, but in ways that really stress the body without hurting yourself. That's where swimming comes in. That's where sophisticated machines come in. And number three, you've got to use nature. You've got to use the telluric currents. If you've had a stroke and you're sleeping in a home on a concrete slab, you're making a mistake. If you're in a home with a concrete slab that's worth a million dollars and you've got half an acre in the backyard, you're making a massive mistake. Put in a teepee, put in a yurt, put in an organic fiber and sleep on it at night and make yourself comfortable. Connect yourself to a guy named Reardon, Neil Reardon down in Costa Rica, in, in Panama. But don't go for that kind of a therapy. And that also includes hyperbaric oxygen. Hyperbaric oxygen early on you should do. But the faster you get your brain in a position where it can receive what hyperbaric oxygen can deliver is the faster you're going to see a fuller enunciation and a fuller comeback. All right. That's a 15-minute edition. We'll be doing this kind of regularly. I'll add this to the first segment. Enjoy your week.